Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 319 The Making of a Mass Meditation Movement. We're joined again by religious studies professor Eric Braun to continue our discussion on the development of the global meditation movement sparked by the Burmese monk Ledi Sayadaw. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. You make the point, and you've already made it pretty well, I think, that there is this kind of connection when you look back on the history of, of the stuff between changes in the political state and changes in the kind of uh, uh, practice of an understanding of, of religion. And one of the things you described as, as kind of an interesting example, and I still, I still see this playing out actually, you know, in the communities that I've practiced in, um, is this shift that you described happening where before, you know, meditation became a mass movement in Burma, um, there was this kind of um, uh, notion or idea that maybe completely awakened people existed in the past, but it was kind of taken for granted that they, they weren't around now. Um, and then there was a sort of shift where suddenly, as you describe it, suddenly there's like awakened people, arhats everywhere, um, you know, rumored to be like all over the place. Um, and I'm curious, you know, because you tie that to the shift in what was happening with uh, colonial rule. And it also seems to have really deep implications on how people then orient to Buddhism. It's like they're somehow, and this is weird to me. It's like, and, and on the one hand, they're doing their best to preserve, but on the other hand, it's actually, an, it's also an innovation. It's also a change. Um, yeah, that's and, quite true. And I'm curious, you know, how do you see that relationship between the changes of the of the state and the instability there and the changes of, of kind of the religion and, and playing out? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like, in a way, I wonder, like any accurate view of history always has to be to some degree ironic because, mm. you know, there, there's an attempt to preserve, yet in that very preservation, there's a sort of innovation that takes place. You know, even to maintain a tradition uh, takes a great deal of agency, so to speak, of like a, a, lot, a lot of work. You don't just sit around and tradition kind of continues. You have to actually make a lot of effort to keep things going. And so there's always that possibility that change is going to creep in. And you're quite right that... When you look at historical chronicles from Burma, uh, an excellent scholar of Burmese Buddhism named Patrick Pranke has pointed this out, that you look at some of the earlier, say, in the, in the early 19th century, the texts, and they basically implicitly or explicitly make it clear that arhats are a thing of the past. By the time you get to, the, to a text called the Sasanavamsa that's written during King Mindong's reign uh, in the 1860s, if I recall correctly, it's accepted that arhats are around. Now, why why does this take place? I don't think we have a smoking gun, so to speak, where we say, ah, you know, here's the person who, who said it for the first time, or like, here's the explanation that is absolutely definitive. But it does seem tied to the idea that when there's political and social change that goes along with political change, and there's basically instability, there's an opportunity for, for reconceptualization to take place. Mm. Uh, and it seems to... That that's very very much the case that it does. Uh, so actually, as I mentioned, the British had already been you know kind of creep, not even creeping it. They'd already taken big bites out of Burma 
by Mindon's time. So there was a lot of instability actually that, that was created around that. And there's a lot of really specifically interesting things like the British made land available for rice cultivation in the south and there had been a coup in, in the royal north that was still free, which simultaneously these things encourage people to immigrate down free land, you know, uh, away from the instability. But of course, what is what happens if this, you're losing population and there's movement, it's great instability. All these things, you know, not not in a direct causal relationship, but create an environment where people could really begin to rethink the possibilities. And they very much did. Uh, so even prior to the British completely taking over. But then once they take over, the policies they supported only created a greater sense of instability that allowed this kind of response. One example I often give, it's kind of a larger overarching policy of the British that created this environment of innovation. Queen Victoria, because of the Sepoy Rebellion in India, which is, you know, was a terrible, in the 1850s, was a terrible sort of tumult in India where many, many people were killed uh, because of a, a, it used to be called a mutiny within the Indian army, which is of course controlled by the British. Now is often called the Sepoy Rebellion. The rumor was when they, you know, you'd have to bite off the cartridge to shoot the gun. And there's, of course, Hindus and Muslims in the army in India. And the rumor was spread that the cartridges were smeared with both pork and beef fat. So it was bad for everybody. But for whatever reasons, there's lots of other reasons. It's a terrible rebellion. So Queen Victoria had said, the British will not get involved in anybody's religious beliefs. We are going to take a hands-off policy. And I think Americans often think to themselves, that sounds great. That's essentially secular. We just leave people alone, let them do their thing. Right. But from the British perspective, that is that is an overt attack on Buddhism because the idea in, from the Buddhist perspective, at least of Burmese, was Buddhism is going to disappear if we don't actively work at it, uh, which is what kings had done up to that time. So once the uh, king's I... gone and the British take over, there's nobody minding the store, essentially, and everything is going to go to pot. And, you know, they had all these examples of monks, you know, pulling shenanigans and getting in relationships and asking for money and eating after noon and, you know, doing all sorts of bad things. And, <laughs> Drinking alcohol. Uh, well, yeah, probably to, yes, to a significant degree, all these stuff, all this stuff goes on. And so, you know, what do you do? Well, you got to take steps. You're already innovating then in a certain sense. And it, it kind of opens the door to these further developments that, that lead to the, to the argument. Now, of course, they already believe our hots are possible. So, it's a natural step to say, well, you can do it too, layperson. It doesn't just have to be an ordained person or a person who goes off to the jungle or, you know, anything in particular. And so this is this really sets the stage for the possibility of these changes that take place once the arguments are made that everybody can meditate and they have real possibility. You know, Mahasi now certifies people. Uh, Ingrid Yord, has a, uh, this, who's a scholar of modern Burma, uh, it did a lot of ethnographic work in the Mahasi tradition and noted that um, they actually have a specific tabulation of accomplishments. And I can't remember the number, but it's something like 1,087,000 people who have attained at least stream enterer status. So, you know, there's a real specific belief that people are accomplishing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. That, that, that sort of uh, is a nice segue because I, I wanted to ask, you know, um, it, if if this just stayed in Burma, that would be kind of interesting and one thing. But right. this kind of mass lay meditation movement, in some sense, has become the basis of modern Buddhism in general. I mean, not not all of modern Buddhism, but certainly big portions of it, um, where meditation 
is kind of widespread. I mean, insight meditation, obviously, there's all, you, you see almost no monastics, you know, when you go to a, a major right. meditation center, it's all lay people, and it's all right. lay people almost teaching lay people. So did you sort of look at how it went from Burma and then spread out, you know, and kind of became such an important part of how we now understand Buddhism? I, yeah, I've been very interested in this. In the last part of the book, it touches upon this um, uh, to some extent. I mean, you know, relatively deeply, but but much, 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 much more can be said. And in fact, uh, my next book's project, which I'm already working on, is to explore this in detail. In fact, but you know, how did Lady make it, and other monks eventually? How did they make it plausible? One key factor was taking out the necessity of deep concentration, the jhanas. Probably most of your listeners know, you know, know in detail about these sort of things. Uh, and the person who promulgated that most, uh, m well, most, to, to the greatest degree, most well-known is Mahasi Seada, who essentially says you need no concentration before you begin vipassana or insight practice. So this made it a very doable thing for a wide group of people. And even traditions like Essen Goenka, uh, Uba Ken and Essen Goenka and the people who come out of that, um, they... You know, if you do a 10-day retreat in the Goenka tradition, for instance, it's about three and a half days, usually, of concentration. So really not very much, let alone, you know, nowhere near the jhanas for most people. Um, this made it quite feasible for lay people, let's say. But then at the same time, actually, Lady has a part to play in this, in fact. Lady, so far as I'm aware, was the first prominent monastic teacher of meditation to, to install a lay person as a teacher even of monks to put a lay person in a prominent position. And even today, of all the many varied practice traditions in Burma, the only one that, that consistently maintains lay teachers as the heads is the tradition that flows from lady to a teacher named Seatechi, to a teacher named Ubakin, to Essen Goenka, and then on and on to other people who kind of moved out into the world. Um, so to some degree, there was like actually the possibility of that kind of lay leadership for these more portable and easy practices, so somewhat easier practices to start anyway, because of because of these developments directly in Burma domestically. But then I think these key figures like Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and, and a number of other figures as well, um, they themselves, of course, brought their own sensibility, their own interest in meditation, but not necessarily uh, not necessarily an interest in bringing everything about the Buddhist traditions in which they were learning when they were in Asia two people in the West. And so they, of course, were innovators quite clearly, of course, in and of themselves and brought these traditions, you know, brought even much more of a lay sort of centered practice uh, once they brought these things to the States. And of course, once they brought practice as something that they didn't feel necessarily even needed to be tied to a overt Buddhist cosmology, so right. didn't feel it needed to be tied to karma or to rebirth necessarily, then why are you practicing? You know, if it's not for a better rebirth, if it's not within a view that this might be good for you, 100,000 lives down the line, it becomes much more focused on results and a kind of practice that becomes, that can become, let's say, therapeutic. Sure. And of course, mindfulness-based stress reduction in BSR, which many people know about and is very prominent now as a, as a pretty much overtly secular therapeutic tool for many people who, you know, for instance, who aren't even Buddhist who have no interest in Buddhism, that comes out essentially out of, um, well, John Kabat-Zinn's formulation that, that is great, not entirely, but not exclusively, let's say, but, it, but deeply indebted to the Mahasi form of practice that he was taught by people like Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield.
Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, in some ways, like the trends that you're describing, if you kind of go, th- kind of let them play out, you could kind of see it moving in that direction in some right. sense. Right. Um, That's true. I mean, of course, it's moved in many complex ways, and some people have become, you know, in the West have become very traditional monks. But, but the, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, there's a strand in the in the story of these developments that. That, that tends towards a profound secularization of practice. And that's, I think, you know, as many scholars have pointed out, and which I definitely agree with, is really a big deal in terms of the implications of how it changes what these practices mean and how people view the value of them and, and many other things as well. Yeah, and maybe the, even the, result, the results that, that they get from doing them are... Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's quite true. Some people don't believe in awakening at all or see no reason to have that in their minds as a purpose for practice. For some folks, it's, you know, it's a way to just live a better life right here and now, uh, you know, on a kind of incremental basis. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been kind of playing with this idea, and maybe I'll just kind of uh, run it by you and see if this relates to what you're saying. Um, that kind of Buddhism right now seems to be getting unbundled in the same way that like these massive, some, some of the different uh, um, business models of the, of the 20th century are now becoming completely unbundled. And uh, I was kind of curious about this, and so I looked up what unbundling was, because I'd heard of it before. And it's a neologism to describe the ubiquity of mobile devices, internet connectivity, consumer web technology, social media, and information access in the 21st century, how those are affecting older institutions, like education, broadcasting, newspapers, games, shopping, and I would throw in Buddhism, um, by breaking up the packages they once offered providing particular parts of them at a scale and a cost unmatchable by the old order. Unbundling thus is called the great disruptor. And I couldn't help but when I read that think, you know, meditation, you know, and mindfulness, uh, like in some sense, you could see that as kind of being pulled out and offered at a kind of scale and, and, and outside of a kind of context, you know, this sort of Buddhist bundle, you know, where you have the you know, ethics, concentration, insight, however you bundle it, there's all did the eightfold path. Um, What do you make of that notion? Does that fit in with what you're describing or does that relate at all in in terms of what you've noticed? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, one thing it makes me think about is the fact that when one thinks about these transformations, for me anyway, this is just tentative thoughts right off the cuff hearing you describe this, that, um, that actually in many ways that's a powerful way I quite like to describe I like the fact that it not only talks about the idea that change is taking place, but it's, but, but the fact that it can be pr- profoundly disruptive. Yeah. Because what it points to me is that the, here's here's the one issue that it's not an issue with the term unbundling, but it's something that I think is often assumed that um, that runs counter to often how I think about it, which is that unbundling can sound like you have all these entities. Maybe they're woven in very complex ways, but anyway, there are these entities. There's meditation. There's ethics, as you mentioned. There's this, that, and the other. And you kind of tease them apart and you end up having these separate things. But what strikes me is that the very bundling itself as a gestalt whole, so to speak, it, it, it only makes sense within a larger kind of encompassing background understanding of the way the world works. It more broadly construed, there's essentially a kind of overarching and pervasive ethical view that makes these things make sense together and yeah, essentially makes them make sense as a whole. 
And so when I think about something like unbundling, which undoubtedly is in a way takes place because people see one thing they want and they, they leave the rest maybe, yes. um, or they only take a couple, that it implies not just that one thing comes out, but that there's a there's a profoundly different kind of over overarching, encompassing kind of ethical view of the way the world works, or let's say more neutrally, a kind of background understanding. I know this sounds very, very abstract, but my point to this is that I, I, this is coming off of the thinking of the philosopher Charles Taylor, that when we see social change take place or when we see these developments, what always strikes me is that, that what's going on is not just a specific uh, tinkering or transformation, but a real, but, but it reveals something very profound about a kind of like, essentially like kind of a, how does one put it, like a kind of change of heart. There's a, like a, there's a really deep-seated kind of change going on or implication going on about the way one sees the world. And, and, and I think that's important to always kind of juxtapose to the specific change one sees. So even with technology, when we all kind of have our iPhones or when we, when we come to think differently about how we interact with people based upon technology, it's not just because there's some piece of technology in your hand that makes something possible that wasn't possible before, but it brings in train a whole kind of not to put too, not to push this too far when it comes to like an app on an iPhone, but it does suggest a kind of difference in how we're going to relate in the ethics of how we how we interact with other people, and when it comes to meditation, which is a much bigger deal, I think, than you know, can be a much bigger deal. There is this kind of one ought to be looking for really profound things going on in just sort of social consciousness with something like unbundling. Does yeah. that make sense? It's kind of a kind of Absolutely. a long answer, but um, but. But for me, I always want to. Maybe it's the religious studies angle. I want to. I want to push the idea that there's a kind of, there's something very serious going on, on for the whole person. I guess that's what I mean, uh, in terms of these changes. Absolutely, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And I, kind of, from my perspective, talking to different people, one of the, the strong critiques or the strong kind of responses to this, kind of unbundling process is, um, what you're saying, like when you chain when you pull something out you actually you you disrupt and change the original the original thing and you change what it was aiming at and you you know you can you obviously lose a lot of things that were working in some sort of harmony together um so it has a profoundly disruptive effect and yet there's something really exciting for me about what's happening in the sense that um it seems to create another opening for new recombinations of things which maybe were never possible before right. um, because you know in Burma in the 18th century presumably you know they weren't able to you know recombine these elements with things that they had not yet learned about uh, <laughs> right, right. quite out there so that's quite true I mean the change that takes place you know it strikes me that when you unbundle and when you disrupt and when you take certain things there's a way in which you're, you're being selective and so you're reducing in, in a certain way, not so much reducing the tradition as a whole that you might be aware of, but you're just taking what you want. To that degree, it's a reduction. Yes. But it always strikes me as without any, without any gap whatsoever, it's, it's now part of, an, of the entirety of a kind of worldview and tradition, whatever it might be, even if people don't, aren't aware that they have a tradition. Um, it it enters right. into that fully so that the things are always changing, but, but in certain, almost like a solid state kind of system or something, um, 
I'm not sure if that's quite the right term, but there's a way in which nothing gets lost. It only, or, or, or nothing, nothing, the whole, the entirety never gets diminished. It just gets changed in terms of what the content is, but it keeps on kind of moving and, 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 and you know, entering into these kind of full-fledged views of what the world is. But there's no doubt that it's distinctive now in a way. It's not just the same old thing. It's not old wine and new bottles or, you know, um, you know, same old, same old, but slightly reconfigured. It's with technology now and, and these changes in the sensibility within, you know, America, certainly, um, uh, among other places. It's what makes it exciting is, of course, it is these really kind of new conceptions about what practice is going to be. And it's alignment with psychology is, of course, one arena and cognitive science as well. Are some of these arenas where it's there's really interesting changes taking place for sure. Mm. OK, cool. Well, th thanks for. Uh... Yeah, thanks for riffing on that with me and, and sure, sure. exploring. I figured that was an idea that you you probably. Um... Oh, it looms large. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Cool. So I was wondering, we have a few more minutes, and uh, uh -huh. there've been a couple questions submitted while we were talking, and I was wondering oh, okay. if, if you had time for a couple questions. Right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sweet. Um, so first, uh, Stefan. Uh, Stefan Iverson, he asked, um, "Do you have any observations on the current state of Buddhism in uh, Burma?" Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, all sorts of observations, I guess. But um, when it comes to meditation, of course, things have not stayed the same. It's not like Lady did something and then you know it's a few other people did and then it sort of stayed the stable. Uh, change has been continuing, and many different traditions have developed. What's one interesting thing that's been developing lately, and actually in our globalized world now, this is the challenge now about talking about developments in Burma because things have become so globalized that you can't quite as easily never it's always been true that you can't separate people by borders you know entirely but it's becoming even more porous let's say but there's been a real interest and rise and well let's say rise in the interest in jhana meditation for instance through folks like the paotsada and these folks um who travel to the states as well and teach here so there's been interest in jhanas for instance here in a way that ha there hadn't been an interest in the past so these develops continue in this regard um I don't know if the, if the questioner is, is, is thinking, too, about political change. To some degree, the monkhood cannot be discounted as a, a critical component of what's going on in Burma when it comes to political developments. But there hasn't, to my, this is not my area of focus, but to my, you know, I try to keep an eye on what's going on. But my impression is that lately there hasn't been quite the sort of dynamic like overall systemic challenges or, or changes driven by monastic interest as there have been in, in, in say, a few years earlier with the Saffron Revolution and, and these sort of things, um, however one might understand those. So it's really, you know, in an interesting way, it's a kind of, with the arrival of a, let's say, quasi-democratic system a couple of years ago, the election of Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, you know, there's been a, there's been a kind of... Um, well, there, there's, there's been a, there's been all sorts of di different movements, but not, a, I wouldn't say one coherent response. But I, but I must, of course, add one thing, which I'm sure everyone is thinking of, and that's, of course, these, these disturbing developments in relationship to these people called the Rohingya, uh, or, or what Burmese often call um, Bangladeshis. Uh, these Muslim uh, folks, uh, particularly these people in the state of Arakan in the west of Burma, who are well, they're terribly beleaguered, you know. They're, whatever one believes historically, so many Burmese will argue that they've been coming into the country recently. Others argue that they've been there 
for many, many generations. I think that's probably actually much, much more the case. But, uh, but anyway, whatever you think, the relationship between Burmese Buddhists and these folks countrywide uh, and between Muslims uh, who are a distinct and relatively small minority and Burmese Buddhists, it's been very, very unpleasant. And there's certain, there's certain monastic leaders uh, you know, or leaders within among certain groups of people like this guy, Uwirathu, who are part of this 969 movement. Uh, who basically just spread a lot of, um, well, a lot of misinformation and a lot of um, really pernicious kind of ideas that that foment violence, maybe not, um, well, pretty close to, pretty darn close to directly, in fact. But, But at the very least, they support a kind of prejudiced view that has encouraged uh, or at least um, suborned uh, violence against uh, Muslims. And um, this, this is, of course, a really unfortunate development, but it would be very unfair to say that that is representative of the monastics as a whole. But it is a contingent. You know, these are human beings in robes, and a lot of them, they act all sorts of different ways. Uh, and some, at least from my perspective, in not such a great way. So it's a real, it's a, it's a very, as it has always been the case, it's extremely complicated. Um, and there's all sorts of things going on. Some, some not so good. Others, you know, others really quite interesting and maybe, um, you know, better for the long-term health, in my opinion, politically as well as spiritually for the country. Hmm. Okay, cool. Last question from uh, Bodhi Paksa. Um, he said, so far, you haven't mentioned uh, Ledi Saida's quote-unquote rediscovery of Vipassana from a practitioner in a cave in Burma. Um, the stories always sounded rather fishy to me. Uh, what's your perspective on this story? I Well, it is possible that there is a story about a cave. Of course, there is this story about um, about the Mingon Seada uh, meeting a practitioner in a cave in the hills of Sagain. And the Mingon Seada ended up teaching the Mahasi Seada, who you know ended up teaching many, many people, um, which always sounded like something that was very possible. Sagain, you know, which is only about a 20-minute drive from Mandalay up on the banks of the Ayawadi River, um, it's possible somebody taught him, but there's really not much, you know, not much knowledge of you know, specifically about that. When it comes to lady, this is a huge issue because the Goenka people, well, it's a huge issue for certain people because many people in the Goenka tradition understand their tradition of practice to be one that has, that has, that has been main to quote Essen Goenka has been maintained in its pristine purity in quote, since mm. the time of the Buddha. I, to be frank, I don't see that as much of a possibility. If it is the case, um, uh, there's no clear link uh, that we can trace back. Lady certainly himself never said such a thing, at least in no source I've ever seen. There's an argument that he did learn his technique from a monk in Mandalay, but uh, I can't find anywhere where Lady said that. Maybe there is a place. Lady wrote a lot, but I never have seen it. Uh, and he, he never seems to have, um, to have promoted any one kind of one kind of practice in a really regimented fashion, as is the case, actually, generally speaking, with uh, the Goenka tradition, that there is a very clear way of practicing. So in terms of overall kind of like lineages of practice, I, I, I strongly suspect that Lady um, developed much of it himself and under the influence of people like Upo Line, who you mentioned earlier, but there there wasn't any one single tradition of practice being carried down from, say, from the time of the Buddha or even from very far in the past to Lady. It seems to have been 
a number of influences that shaped him. Uh, and and so far as I know, no monk in a cave. All right. Maybe he lived in a cave for a while, I should say. <laughs> so he may have gotten it there, but not but not directly from anyone else in the cave that I'm aware of. Mm. Okay, great. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much, Eric, for uh, yeah taking the time to explore some of the ideas in your book, and then also just go going off into some other interesting tangents. Oh, I'm glad to. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, and thanks everyone for uh, tuning in live. Um, it was great to have your questions, and and also for you to join join us in this conversation. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.